Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting May 27, 2016, we consider the red flag raised in a featured article for the WPJ Spring Issue, Safety First, Entering the Age of Artificial Intelligence, by Sam Winter-Levy, a former Von Klemm Fellow at Harvard University. We'll also point out other top features in the spring issue, cover line Black Lives Matter everywhere. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports news service. Well, once it was unthinkable, but now it's a national security priority. The U.S. will sell weapons to communist Vietnam, a country it fought half a century ago. That announcement coming during President Obama's visit there. Once enemies Washington and Hanoi have a lot in common these days, namely their fear of Chinese expansion in the South China Sea, there are still issues between the U.S. and Vietnam, of course. The White House wrapped Vietnam on human rights concerns. The Vietnamese remain somewhat tone-deaf about this. It barred several high-profile dissidents from attending an event with Obama. The killing of the top Taliban leader in a White House-approved drone strike is straining relations with Pakistan. The attack is said to have taken place on the Pakistani side of its border with Afghanistan. That's an acceptable price for Washington to pay, which wanted Mullah Akhtar Mohammed Mansour dead. But the Taliban simply named a replacement. And meantime, there are new concerns about whether Mansour's killing will hurt U.S. and Afghan efforts to get the Taliban to participate in the so-called reconciliation process with the Afghan government. And with less than six months to go till America chooses a new president, who would be better at managing foreign policy? A Wall Street Journal NBC poll says Hillary Clinton by a nearly two-to-one margin would. She's also seen as a better commander-in-chief than Donald Trump by a 10-point margin. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Shall we play a game? Oh. <laughs> I think I missed him. Yeah, weird, isn't it? Yeah. I'd love to. How about global thermal nuclear war? Wouldn't you prefer a good game or chess? <laughs> In the classic 1968 sci-fi film 2001 A Space Odyssey, the supercomputer HAL turned dangerously disobedient in what it perceived as self-defense. In 1983's War Games, the Pentagon's artificial intelligence mistakenly followed a teenage hacker's orders down a path toward nuclear holocaust. And, in fact, some experts think that the danger from fast-developing artificial intelligence in the real world may come less from AI's own agenda, defensive or otherwise, than from the unintended consequences of human programming and instructions. 
For the World Policy Journal Spring Issue, Foreign Affairs magazine editor Sam Winterlevy, a former von Klemm fellow at Harvard, considered the threat and possible responses in an article headlined Safety First, Entering the Age of Artificial Intelligence. We discussed it recently for this podcast. Sam Winterlevy, welcome to World Policy on Air. Great. Thank you very much for having me. We started this podcast with two scenes from science fiction, and your article early on cites a famous science fiction writer to make the case that AI could well pose a threat, perhaps the greatest threat yet, to all humanity. Tell us what Arthur C. Clarke had to say. He had a famous dictum that, that said that when a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. When he states something is, impos- is impossible, he's very probably wrong. And he was just trying to get at this idea that it's very hard to predict uh, the future of scientific progress, that people have always have, have often said uh, something is impossible and then very quickly been proved wrong. Uh, most famously, people, people said that it was impossible to fly just a few years before the Wright brothers uh, with, nuclear, with, with, with nuclear power. Um, the Nobel Prize winning scientist Ernst Rutherford said that it was impossible and then just a day later, Leo Schillard came up with worked out how to do it. So it's just very, uh, so, so Clark's victim just gets to this idea that it's very hard to predict the future of Uh, scientific progress. Today, any number of distinguished scientists and high-tech innovators, not all of them elderly, have warned specifically about AI, artificial intelligence, beginning with one who wrote the standard textbook on it. Who was he? What did he say? So this is Stuart Russell, who is probably probably the most famous professor of uh, computer science. Um, He's a professor at Berkeley who's written, written the standard textbook on it. And he's very worried. He started to become quite worried about um, how to control very powerful, very intelligent systems, and how to make sure that they do exactly what we say they are, even though that may seem, even though su- uh, systems of such power may seem uh, quite distant. Tesla Motors and SpaceX CEO Elon Musk uh, called building AI, quote, summoning the demons. Who are some of the great human intelligences that have warned against it? So you've got people like uh, Bill Gates, um, Steve Wozniak at Apple. Uh, scientists like Stephen Hawking, um, Nobel Prize winner Frank Frank Wilsack, and they've all started to started to become much more concerned about um, how you make how how you control very powerful artificial intelligence, um, and how how you ensure that its consequences are beneficial. And similar sentiment uh, was surveyed at an Oxford University conference of experts. That's right. Yeah. Um, uh, so in 2008, a uh, survey of experts thought that. Artificial intelligence was actually the the greatest threat to uh, human to, to humans in the next hundred years, above kind of climate change, above nuclear war, um, and they actually gave it a five a five percent chance of causing human extinction by twenty one hundred, which sounds sounds high, but uh, uh, it's, that's a, it's a worrying number. Uh, like many people, my first exposure to AI, primitive to be sure, was losing to uh, a computer tic-tac-toe machine. What are the high points of progress since then, uh, ending back on a game board, the battle over Go, and why is that result seen as so important? So I guess the, some of the most famous high points recently have come in 2011, uh, IBM supercomputer Watson beat Jeopardy, uh, the quiz show which people have thought only humans could play. Um, Self-driving cars are starting to appear, and then yeah, like you said, Go, uh, which is a game that's much, much, much more complicated to play than chess. There are like uh, exponentially more um, combinations of moves. And earlier, earlier this year, Google DeepMind's program called AlphaGo uh, defeated the world champion. 
um, and that was something that many experts thought couldn't happen, wouldn't happen within in the next decade. Um, so that was like a very big breakthrough um, because it showed that these computers could start to play games that were much, much more complicated than just things that you could use brute machine, brute force to, uh, brute kind of uh, mathematical force to, to, to crack. But you say that in assessing threat levels, real threat levels, it's important to distinguish between different levels of AI. The first with a rather narrow focus, as you've said, uh, playing games, uh, even very complicated ones, and then what you call artificial general intelligence, and finally superintelligence. Uh, tell us first about uh, artificial general intelligence. What would that be? How far away is it? Yeah, so artificial narrow intelligence is something like um, a program that can only play chess. So uh, the, the, the um, Deep Blue, which beat Kasparov at chess in, in the 1990s, it was very good at chess, but it couldn't do anything else. So that's narrow intelligence. General intelligence is when you start to get compute, uh, uh, systems that can that are as smart as humans across the board. So they they're not just good at chess, but they can also uh, write books or um, you know solve solve different different sorts of problems. And that is something that's a much much harder problem to solve than just narrow intelligence. And that's probably still very distant. We have, we don't we're not sure how distant, but the recent breakthroughs in uh, with things like Go, where you start to program systems to teach themselves how to play these things, that's the beginning of the pathway toward general intelligence. And uh, people people don't know how long that will take together. It could be it could be one decade. It could be it could be many decades. Um, but what's worrying is that once you get there, you, it's very it's a very quick. It could be a very quick route to superintelligence, which are systems that are smarter than humans across the board, not just in not just at chess, but at everything. And the reason why it could be very quick to get there from general intelligence is that once you start to teach a system how to improve itself, uh, which, is, which, which would be involved in getting to general intelligence, once it can improve itself, then you can start to get like exponential improvement where as soon as it's smarter than us, it can improve itself very quickly and then and quickly become much, much, much smarter than us. You've mentioned that there might also be random glitches uh, that we all know in dealing with computers, and that might be the digital equivalent of, of cellular mutations, which really mirrors or parallels uh, human evolution? Perhaps, yeah. It's more the danger that um, random glitches with your computer when your Word document crashes, that's, that's not a big deal. When you're dealing with something... That's, much, that, that's very, very powerful, that's more intelligent than humans, if you have random glitches in its code there, then it will be very worrying. And if these systems are smarter than humans, it's very hard to get them back under control because they, they can work out what we're gonna, what, how, we, how humans would respond. They're, you know, they're, they're, they have more computing power than us. Um, so you need to be very careful that there's a very low chance of any sort of random glitch or um, any, sort of, uh, any sort of bug before you get before you get super intelligent systems. According to your story, a professor named Nick Bostrom of Oxford University's Future of Humanity Institute sees catastrophe as a default outcome because of two features of machine superintelligence. What's the first? Yeah, so the first point he makes is that people assume that intelligence goes along with things like empathy or um, altruism or uh, non-violence, but that's actually not that's not actually necessary. You could have something that's extremely intelligent uh, in the sense of it's very good at um, working out steps toward a final goal, but it doesn't have any of these other kind of human values like uh, like empathy. Um, and so, with compute with with artificial intelligence, it might be it might be possible to develop extremely intelligent systems, but who have no 
kind of moral compass or anything. So all they do is uh, program, work, you know, they can program um, all the digits of pi, but they have no conception of kind of human goodness. So, if, so that's one reason why catastrophe could result, because if you have a very powerful system that doesn't have any of the kind of moral intuitions or, or emotional kind of checks that we have, then it's much harder to predict how it will act. In other words, if it sees the human basis of uh, climate change, instead of uh, changing energy uses, it, it might eliminate humans. Exactly. And so, so one, one worry is that a lot of final goals that you might program a computer with, whether that's you know, uh, make people happy or uh, solve climate change, along the way to that final goal, various kind of uh, motivations could converge on... Um, on threatening humans because humans are a source of energy or because humans might threaten to turn off the, turn off the computer like in the, the clip you played at the beginning. Um, and so it's just very hard, like you're, you're, you're getting a system to optimize for one particular function and you need to be very clear beforehand what the kind of constraints on that system will be. And it's very hard to, to, to delineate those very precisely just in code because all sorts of, our, all sorts of human moral checks and intuitions, it's actually very hard to pin down precisely where they arrive from. And all that's going to motivate a super intelligent artificial intelligence system is, is the code that we program it with. So if you're trying to program the full set of, uh, the, full, the full range of moral intuitions that humans have, that's actually going to be very, very hard to do. Um, this, is what, this is what people refer to as the control problem, making sure that these systems behave in line with how we want them to behave rather than how we, rather than how we programmed them to behave. Uh, which may not be exactly how we really want them to behave, if that makes sense. Why couldn't even superintelligence be programmed from the start with some variation of science fiction writer Isaac Asimov's first rule of robotics, preventing action or inaction uh, that causes harm to humans, uh, what you call the control problem? Well, so, so Nick Bostrom has this example where, and, and, and in, the, in the Asimov uh, novel that you refer to, um, if you program a computer to say don't cause harm, then it might interpret that in ways that in the, in the Asimov novel, the computer then uh, takes over the world because you know, humans don't know what's in their best interest. And the, if you, one way of interpreting uh, making, sure that human, making sure that you don't cause harm to humans is you know, making sure that they don't have any power so they can never go to war or whatever. Um, and that's kind of an extreme example. But the, point, the broader point is that any one goal that you give it, so don't cause harm, we don't know exactly how that's going to be interpreted by something that's more intelligent than us but that doesn't have our same uh, set of kind of cultural re references or that interprets things very precisely in a non-human way because it's, it's, you know, it's not a human, it's, a, it's just lines of code. So you need to be, any one goal that you give it beforehand, like don't cause harm to humans, could lead to a whole range of different outcomes depending on how that's interpreted. And it's very hard to interpret that precisely. Uh, it's very hard to define that precisely in a way that won't, in a way that we can be confident won't lead to any uh, disastrous outcomes. Uh, somewhat similar is the second potentially fatal flaw of superintelligence, unintended consequences. Talk more about that. It's very similar to the, the idea of if you give it a final goal, work on something in a factory or whatever your final goal is. Um, so Nick Bostrom has this slightly facetious example about making paper, paper clips. So if you give it the final goal of just make lots of paper clips, then it could end up uh, turning the whole world into a paper clip machine. Um, and it's very hard, again, it, it just comes back to this idea that it's very hard to define beforehand exactly what the constraints are on, on a superintelligent system um, because you don't know how it's going to, how it's going to interpret that goal. Um, so with the paperclip example, you could say, you know, uh, 
turn the whole uh, you know, make paper clips but don't call you know don't don't cause harm to humans but then you're back to this problem of like how well, how does it know what the, how does it know exactly how not to cause harm to humans and each step of the way you know there are there are many different ways in which a computer can interpret that and we're de if you're dealing with things that are more intelligent than you you won't be able just to like unplug it like you can your own like you can your desktop Talk about the relative amounts of research underway now into developing AI versus developing safety systems or programming for it, and why there's such a disparity. Yeah, so at the moment there's this huge arms race going on in Silicon, in Silicon Valley where Facebook and Google and IBM and all these, all these top tech companies are pouring billions of dollars into artificial intelligence research just to try to race towards getting systems that are as intelligent as possible because there are huge commercial rewards for them to do that. But they're not giving as much thought to the, the, the control problem, the idea of like what happens when we get to extremely intelligent, um, extremely intelligent systems. They just want to get there as soon as possible, whereas it, it's probably better if they slow down and pay more attention to the, to the, to the, to the attendant risks. One, one of the reasons is that for each company, they have huge incentives to get there as quickly as possible, but at, for, the, for the world as a whole, uh, there's, a, there's a coordination failure for the world as a whole. We prefer it if it if it took a little bit longer. Uh, so there's a, there's a market failure. Politicians and policymakers are too. They have they have political they have immediate political pressures and they have uh, and this problem seems very distant. You know, it's it, it's something that might not happen for decades. You know, it, that you're dealing in prob in sm low probability, high risk outcomes. So politicians, are always, uh, we know, you know, we, similar with something like climate change, we know are very hard at dealing with those sorts of problems because they're always going to have more pressing concerns. So that's one reason why there's been so much effort devoted just to getting to artificial intelligence as quickly as possible and much less research, much less money spent on making sure that it's safe. Still, you say there has been a recent increase in AI safety research. Why and where do we see the key conferences, the biggest investment, the best work being done? Yeah, so recently it's picked up mainly because of private philanthropy. So you have uh, donors like Jan Talen, the, the Skype co-founder, uh, Elon Musk, um, they've started to invest money uh, into into various AI safety researchers, uh, AI safety research institutes. Um, so at Cambridge, there's the Center for the Study of Existential Risk. Um, in, in in Massachusetts, in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, there's the Future of Life Institute, um, and most recently the um, in, in Silicon Valley, OpenAI uh, was has been launched with with, with one billion dollars committed by Elon Musk. Uh, Peter Thiel and various other Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. So these, the, the private philanthropy is starting to uh, funnel more money towards work on AI safety. So work on the kind of basic basic problems in computer science and philosophy and logic that ensure that you can verify that uh, advanced systems will will stay safe. Um, so it is starting to pick up, but there's still a lot of work, there's still a lot of work to be done on the safety side. Um, but yeah, private philanthropy has started to has started to work, has started to wake up to this problem. What should governments be doing to augment private investment and in research? So there's a number of things that governments should be doing. I think for now, because this problem is still distant, they should be very cautious about getting involved too aggressively. So we don't want them. We don't think it would be sensible for them to start regulating this now or to start uh, threatening companies now. How about this? Um, but they should start to get to familiarize themselves with this problem because it's only going to become a bigger issue. So perhaps forming things like working groups in collaboration with these, these research institutes. Um, and the one thing they can be doing is funding 
basic research on AI safety questions. So funding the basic kind of uh, the basic questions in computer science that there is this market failure that exists because the big companies aren't going to be funding research on that, um, and we think government has a, has a role to play there. And what lessons should we take from previous efforts to regulate dangerous technology, nuclear, biologic, uh, toxic? I think w one of the key lessons is that um, attempts to regulate technology can often lead to quite disastrous unintended consequences. So in the 1970s with biological weapons, um, the U.S. tried to regulate the use of biological weapons, and in response, the Soviet Union realized that they had an opportunity now because the rest of the world was not working on biological weapons, but they had an advantage they could see, so they massively ramped up their, their production of chemical and biological weapons. So that was an example of where a well-intentioned attempt to regulate uh, a dangerous technology actually made the situation worse in some ways because the Soviet Union massively accelerated their their program. So you want to be very careful with these sorts of regulations about the unintended consequences. Similarly, so with something like artificial intelligence, you don't want to drive it underground because then it's harder to monitor. You don't want to, if, if the United States on its own passes regulation, then a lot of these companies who are doing this research might just move to China or, or, or Europe or Russia, and then it can make the problem much harder to deal with in the long run. So you want to be very careful about how you regulate and make sure that you're working with the companies rather than against them. The final point in your piece is the importance of collaboration. Say more about that. Yeah, so I guess this is the key to avoiding these sorts of arms race dynamics where companies just race to uh, get intelligence and don't pay as much attention to the safety measures. And th these sorts of arms race dynamics are very dangerous because you get into these situations where it's in neither side's interest, but you're stuck in the you're stuck in the, the, the arms race has a momentum of its own. And collaboration is one of the key ways to avoid that. Um, where if you can guarantee that the benefits will be shared, then there's less urgency to rush there and sacrifice safety measures along the way. Um, and so collaboration between different companies, between different research institutes, and between government and the private sector, and government and universities will be, will, will, will be key if you want to avoid those sorts of dynamics uh, to make sure that, that we reap all the kind of benefits of artificial intelligence, but without sacrificing safety along the way, without without just rushing headlong toward a final goal, without paying attention to make sure that it, that it has a safe outcome, but without making sure that the risks aren't, aren't ignored. Sam Winter-Levy, thank you. Thank you very much. Sam Winter-Levy is an editor at Foreign Affairs Magazine and a former von Klemm Fellow at Harvard, focusing on international relations. His article for the World Policy Journal Spring Issue is headlined, Safety First, Entering the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Also featured in the WPJ Spring Issue, Black Lives Matter Everywhere, you'll find articles about black power in the French banlieues, about South Africa's racial revolution, in theory, and about building black solidarity across national borders, plus the unintended consequences of India's war on sex selection. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>